ಅಸತೋಮಸದ್ಗಮಯಸೋಮ್ಯೋತಿರ್ಗಮಯಂಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಮ್ಮಟಾಲಿಟಿ Good morning and welcome everybody. I think it's sort of the first really cool day of the fall. <laughs> we have been studying the Bhagavad Gita and we are on the 6th chapter in our Gita class. And there's this verse which we have been studying in the past week um which is basically what I'm going to talk about today. Um there's a beautiful phrase in that verse. where krishna says to arjuna what you gain in spiritual life is the greatest gain there is no greater gain yang labdhva na chaparam labham manyate adhikam tatah yasmin sthito dukhena guruna api na vichalyate the 22nd verse of the 6th chapter krishna says to arjuna having attained which one does not think that there's anything higher to attain any greater gain to have and having uh, been established in which one is not shaken by the um, one is not shaken by the greatest of sorrows na dukhena guruna api vichalyate when we hear this three kinds of questions um, arise or we can ask three questions why is spiritual gain the greatest gain why not something else uh, why is it greater than anything else question 1 why second what exactly is it that we gain in spirituality in the ultimate sense in the final answer and final analysis what is it that we gain in spirituality and finally how do you do it how do you gain that how do you gain that by gaining which nothing greater remains to be gained by gain by being established in which even the greatest of sorrows cannot shake you so how do you do that three questions why what and how and that's what we're going to talk about this fine morning the greatest gain of all see where is our happiness what do we consider to be gain in this world money is an obvious answer um people family and friends and relationships gain uh status and achievement in this world gain a degree from an ivy league college a great land a great job in wall street gain what is wrong with these gains the, all of them if you look at them from a philosophical perspective you know our happiness is in some other person And the moment you put your happiness in some other person you know uh, that person is bound to change bound to go away that's the very nature of human life people get old and die parents and grandparents get old and die and pass on children grandchildren grow up and go away people get married and divorced friends meet and then um, lose each other 
Not so much these days with Facebook and everything. <laughs> but still. So people, uh, you know, you're always coming into contact and losing people. This is the very nature of the, of the world. Um, you know, death is ultimately there that separates us from everybody in this world. Death. You may say that, uh, but in Vedanta or in any, any kind of spirituality, do, do we not say that we are immortal, there is no ultimately no death? That's fine in a philosophical analysis. But even from a Vedantic perspective, the person who dies, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, that person, that person is gone forever. No amount of spirituality will bring that person back. The impersonal soul, that consciousness, that sentient being who was that person for this lifetime, that soul goes on. That's an immortal soul in, in any system of, of philosophy, uh, any system of, of religion. But the person is not immortal. The person is gone forever. Sri Ramakrishna has a very touching incident in his uh, life where his beloved nephew lies dying, a young man, and uh, everybody's weeping. Sri Ramakrishna is standing there in a sort of ecstatic mood and uh, in a spiritual mood and smiling. And people thought he was being cruel. And then later they asked him and he said, when I saw that was the boy was dying, I just saw that the soul is leaving the body. That he's still there. It's just that he's not in this body. It's like a sword being drawn from the scabbard. But, but, this is the important thing. The very next moment, he weeps bitterly. Because he feels, that person who was my nephew, that person is no, no longer there. Yes, there's this, I saw clearly there's this thing which survives death. But that's not that person anymore. It's gone. So, uh, from that personal perspective, yes, death is final. That person will never come back again. If we invest our happiness, if we have thrown our happiness in persons, it's limited. You throw our happiness in places, I was happy in that place. Or throw our happiness in time, that was a beautiful time of my life. And old people always say, what a time we had when we had the sign of being old. Uh -huh. Young are not much better. The young are always forward. I'll be happy then, after I graduate. No, you won't. I'm sorry to break the news to you. <laughs> then you're going to enter an awful, absolutely awful job market. <laughs> and then you're going to be saddled with college debt. So after I get a job of my dreams, after I get married, after uh, we have kids, um, no. There is this cartoon, you know, the person the slapstick comedy when someone slips on a banana peel and falls and you laugh. You can fall backwards, slip and fall backwards, or stumble and slip and fall forwards. And we are continuously doing that. Falling backwards, uh, you know, nostalgic about times which are gone, people who are gone, places we have seen, things we have done, old person. And uh, stumbling forward, young person, never living in the moment. You invest your happiness in time, that time or that time ahead, you're never going to be happy really. So our happiness, the gain that we look for, the happiness that we look for is invested in people other than me, is invested in time, some other time in the future. Maybe in heaven I'll be happy. Maybe when I attain samadhi I'll be happy. In the future or in the past. Something outside myself, something in um, some other place, something in some other time. You never go into that's a formula for unhappiness. But that's what all the time we do that. This is happiness or gain which is cut up, limited by time, space and object. 
different time, different place, different person, thing, different possession. When I get that thing, I'll be happy. When I get that person, I'll be happy. So this is limited happiness. This is the kind of happiness everybody is chasing all the time, the kind of fulfillment we are chasing all the time. You might say, what else is there? The sign of a mature person, emotionally mature. I'm not talking about enlightenment and God realization. Emotionally mature. When is the happiest time of your life? You should be able to say honestly, now. Now means when? Whenever is now. Honestly. And where is the happiest time of your life? <clears throat> here. Where is here? Wherever you are. Here is the happiest time of my life. Here is the happiest place of my life. And where do you find, in which person, the, happiest, the happiness is located within myself. <coughs> happiness is located within myself. Only then can you say that my happiness is unlimited. You see, what Vedanta does is, Atma Sukha, the joy of the real self, the joy of the ultimate reality. It is not a joy limited in time. It's not a joy limited in space. It's not a joy which is other than yourself. It is wherever you are, it, that happiness is there. That fulfillment is there. Whenever it is, past, present, future, that fulfillment is there. And it is not something, not invested in something or someone outside you. It is within you, your own real nature. You always carry it around with you. Adi Shankaracharya, the great commentator on the Upanishads, in his commentary on the Taittiriya Upanishad, uh, he writes that within each of us there is this one boundless ocean of bliss, the very spray of which, you know from ocean there is spray, like foam and spray, the very spray of which, a little bit of that spray of which human, uh, human beings are crazy about, they are running madly after that little bit of spray which is just a little spray from the infinite ocean of bliss within ourselves. You might say, all that sounds cool, but really, what does it all mean? We'll see. Don't worry. We still have time to go into it and see what exactly it means and how do we get that. So this unlimited joy, this unlimited, inexhaustible bliss, uh, which is not limited in time, which is not limited in place, which is here, there and everywhere, which is now, then and then, uh, and which is our very own nature. This is what we gain in spiritual life. That is why this gain is, there's nothing higher than this gain. Not only that, as Shankaracharya points out, every other gain, by the gain I mean the satisfaction that we gain in doing everything in the world, that is just, that's also that ultimate bliss. It's just a tiny fraction of that, a reflection of that, a limitation of that. So, Atmananda. Atmananda, the bliss of our real nature, our real self. That itself appears uh, in a very distorted and limited form as all the pursuits that we have in this world. No greater gain than this. This does not depend on time. This does not depend on place. It does not depend on persons. It does not depend on things. It is beyond Desha Kala Vastu in Sanskrit. Space, time and object. It is beyond Sattva, Rajas and Tamas. You see in the Gita there is a distinction. What kind of joys are available to us? This is the joy of tamas. Tamas means uh, laziness and inertia. There's, there's a lot of fun in just sleeping and lazing around, you know, relax. You're not like that. On a Sunday morning, instead of relaxing at home, you've taken the trouble of coming all the way here. So that, uh, you, are, you are depriving yourself of tamasic joy. 
But it's not good. Tamas is basically destructive. The more one indulges in that, the more our personality disintegrates, the more it, uh, it is damaged. But better than this is rajasic joy. In the Gita, Krishna says, the joy born of contact with sense objects. I want to see this, eat this, you know, this is a beautiful day. Instead of lazing around at home, let's go and um, you know, take a walk in Central Park. Or let's go to the Vedanta Society, something like that. And let's, uh, you know, go, go out there and do something. No, don't just sit there. Go out there and do something. That is rajasic, uh, some kind of up and doing. Uh, pursuing certain goals of uh, enjoyment in this world. Ambition, energy, drive. That is a joy. There's a joy of sitting and watching uh, sports on TV. That's tamasic. But there's a joy of going out there into the park and playing that game. You may not be able to play as well as those professionals on TV. But you see the joy that you play, that you get by playing a, maybe a mediocre game outside. But you are engaged in it. So that rajas, that activity, that engagement, uh, you get higher pleasure than this. Better pleasure than this. But even that binds. Rajas binds one to the world. It, it's a it's sort of bondage. Um, the joy that one gets out of fulfilling desires. What's wrong with it? What is wrong with it is this. That uh, um, as we proliferate desires and try to get happiness by satisfying those desires, first problem is most desires will not be satisfied. It's just the way of the world. Most people do not get all their desires satisfied. So the result will be frustration, unhappiness. If you are those lucky few, those people rich enough, young enough, powerful enough, uh, fortunate enough to have just about everything you wanted, then what will be the result? Happiness? No, the best one can hope for is a mild disappointment. <laughs> is this all? Uh, Houston Smith asks in his book, the religions of the world, in his chapter on Hinduism, he says, after you have enjoyed everything in this world, the best cuisine and art and music and vacations and everything you've enjoyed, there's this little voice in the back of your head which says, is this all? You know, the day is getting long and uh, evening is coming, old age and disease and death are coming. Is this all? That's the end of life? So, a mild disappointment, even if one manages to satisfy desires. Um, Eric Fromm, a well-known psychoanalyst, and, uh, you know, he very perceptive writer. He writes that basically what we call happiness in this modern, uh, you know, modern world is building up tension and releasing it. <laughs> so that's not lasting, that's not profound happiness, that's not nourishing happiness. It's a kind of excitement uh, and then it's gone. Whereas Atma Sukha, not limited in time, space and object. It's not limited by rajas also. Then you have something higher than rajas, which is sattva, which is the kind of joy that you get, um, which will lead to bewilderment for all those happy folk in the park outside. Why are, on this beautiful day, why are these people sitting in a hall and listening to some ancient 5,000 year old philosophy? What happiness can there be in that? That is sattvic happiness. The uh, happiness uh, derived in, uh, in spirituality, in, in prayer, in meditation, in philosophical inquiry, into searching after the ultimate ends and meaning of life. There's a very rarefied happiness there, sattva. But what you gain ultimately in spiritual life is beyond sattva. So it goes through sattva. You must be sattvic to become spiritual, but it's beyond sattva. Uh, the, the joy of the Atman, the, what we gain by 
realizing our own self, the reality, is beyond tamas, beyond rajas, beyond sattva also, beyond time and beyond space and beyond object also. Therefore, it is the greatest. Therefore, it is unlimited. But what is it that we gain? And this answers the question, why is it the greatest? Why, cannot be the, why the, uh, can't anything be greater than that? But what is it that we gain? And when we get money, we know what we are getting. When you get into a relationship, you know what you are getting. When you are enjoying a cookie, you know what you are getting. What is it that you are getting ultimately? Can we compress it and say it in very simple words? Ultimately, according to Advaita Vedanta, what is it that we are getting in spiritual life? And to my mind, one word which expresses this, it is a simple and powerful word in Sanskrit, Purnam. Purnam. Purnam means whole, complete. I translate it as infinite. So Purnam is infinite, without limit. Nothing left out. I remember as a little kid, I think I was eight or nine years old, I used to go to this ashram in Bhuvaneshwar, which is on the eastern coast of India. Old ashram established by Swami Brahmananda disciple of Sri Ramakrishna and um, there in the old shrine now there's a new shrine but before the new shrine was built you would have to go up the flight of stairs and there would be a room um, basically an empty room with many windows with sunlight streaming through every window and there would just be this Sanskrit mantra written on a wooden block on the wall Purnamadah Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 What does that mean? Purnamadah Purnamidam That is infinite. This is infinite. From that infinite, this infinite has arisen. And in this infinite, if you recognize the infinity here, if you realize the infinity here, infinity alone remains. Om, peace, peace, peace. I don't know why, but that really affected me. It, it moved me deeply. I was a little kid. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think I understood much of the philosophy behind it. But somehow I still have very strong memories of the cool stone floor beneath my bare feet and the absolute silence and stillness of that room. And not just silence and still, stillness, you know, sunlight streaming through a kind of transcendence, a kind of holiness in that room. And those words, that is infinite, this is infinite. From that infinite, this infinite has arisen. Here itself, if you recognize that infinity, infinity alone remains. Om, peace, peace, peace. Purnam. If you look closely at that, you know, what it means is, Swami Vivekananda said, we Hindus worship a transcendent, imminent God. What is a transcendent God? The, ult the ultimate reality is beyond this universe. Here's this universe of time, space, causation, this vast universe, living, non-living beings. And beyond this, there's a God who created all of this. So that's a transcendent God. The ultimate reality is beyond this universe. And the immanent God is that, that uh, it's here. We don't see it, but somehow it pervades everything here. Every being here, every place here, every time here. So through time and space and all existing things, there is one reality which is invisible to us, but that ultimate spiritual reality is here. And according to this, this mantra, it is the same reality. 
that reality which is transcendent, which religions talk about as the God of the universe, is also present right here in this universe, in and through all beings, a transcendent, immanent. We'll see how that can be possible. Um, you know, there is a huge amount of philosophy, theology, which goes on behind this. Um, you will, so many debates have taken place uh, in religions, both in India and the Middle East and in Europe, uh, regarding the transcendence of God and the immanence of God. You might think they're very abstract things. No, wars have been fought on it. Religions have gone into schisms on it. Um, people have been murdered for it. So, this transcendence of God and the immanence of God, Vedanta says, Hinduism says, that ultimate reality is both transcendent and immanent, is beyond this universe completely and is in and through this everything here. We were worshipping the Divine Mother last week and then we had this talk on uh, the Devi Suktam. At the end of the Devi Suktam, the Rishi, Vagambrini, she says, I, as the Divine Mother, I transcend this entire universe. I exist in my transcendent space. And I pervade the heavens and the earth. The transcendent immanent God. And this is from the Rig Veda. The, uh, the oldest parts of the Veda if you look at it historically. Look at, let's look at this verse a little closely. Mantra. And we'll understand what is meant here. Purnamadaha, the transcendent Brahman. Nirguna Nirakara, that the attributeless Brahman. Pure being, pure awareness, pure bliss, Satchidananda. And uh, the immanent here is Jiva Jagat Ishwara. The Ishwara means God, the God of religion, the personal God of religion, who is the creator of this entire universe. And in Vedanta, not just creator, creator, preserver, and ultimately the dissolver or destroyer. Uh, the Brahma Sutra defines God, the, the immanent God, the um, the God of religion as Janmadhyasya um, Yataha Asya Jagata Janmasthiti Bhanga Yasmat Tad Brahma. What is Brahman? What is God? The from which from which reality this entire universe has been born, in which it exists, into which it shall it shall finally disappear, and from which it shall again appear in a ceaseless cycle of appearance, existence, and disappearance. Srishti Sthiti Pralaya. That is Brahman. That, and that Brahman is the immanent Brahman, the, the Brahman from which the universe emerges. Or this, this triangle of God, sentient being, universe. Jiva, uh, Ishwara, Jiva and Jagat. This is the Purnam Adaha Purnam Idam. This Purnam. Now if you look closely at it, what does this mantra say? No. It's not transcendent, not immanent. It's the same reality. It cancels the uh, that and the this by uh, associating them both with Purnam. It is the same Purnam which you think is the transcendent God. It is the same Purnam which you think is the immanent God. I'm just reading a couple of days ago, there was an article on Einstein said he believed in Spinoza's God. But what is Spinoza's God? This is Spinoza's God. This is what, what Spinoza was trying to get at. You know, Einstein was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, if, you think of a, if you're thinking of a personal deity who rules over this universe, um, um, typically a man with a long white beard sitting somewhere up in the sky ruling the universe. Not his words, but similar words he used. The personal deity, he says, I don't believe in it. But I do believe 
in Spinoza's God. But what is the Spinoza's God? It's this, this. He was trying his best. But I think what he was reaching towards is, he's accused of being a pantheist, but what he was reaching towards is this transcendent immanent, the concept of transcendent immanent. But this mantra, this, it goes beyond that and says, it is the same Purnam which you understand as transcendent and immanent. Further, cause and effect, Purnat Purnamudachyate. From this Ishwara, the personal god of religion, the entire universe has emerged. This is every theistic religion says. What does any theistic religion in the world, um, the Vaishnavas, the Shaktas, the Shaivas, uh, the Muslims and Christians and Jews, those who believe in God, one characteristic they attribute to God is God is the creator of this universe. So God is the cause and the universe is the effect. Effect means the product. And... Uh, what does this mantra say? No. Purnat Purnamudachyate. That Sanskrit Purnat, the fifth case, means it's the cause from which something has come. He says that from which something has come and that which has come are both the same thing. The mantra says that. This is, uh, sounds very paradoxical. It says that the Purnam, the ultimate reality, is beyond causality. Is neither cause, in the ultimate analysis, it's neither cause nor effect. In the words, in the typical phrase used in Uttarakhand by the, by the Vedantins, Karya Karana Vilakshana Brahma. Karana cause, Karya effect, Vilakshana other than, distinguished from. The ultimate reality is neither cause nor effect. That sounds very, very abstract. Let me make it more concrete. Doesn't get more concrete than a pot, our favorite example in Vedanta. Shankaracharya uses that example in Aparokshanabhuti, the clay pot. And he says, Take it in, in um, four steps. First step, you take the pot and we are told, so we have a clay pot, imagine. Imagine you're holding a clay pot. Now you're told that this is actually an effect, a product. There is a cause. And the cause is clay. Clay is the cause and the pot is the effect. So you start with the pot and you're told that there is, this is an effect, there is a, there is a uh, cause. You go to the second stage. The second stage is that what I'm holding is actually an effect, a product. There is something higher which is called a cause. Why would clay be higher than the pot? Because um, clay pre-exists the pot. And uh, when it's a pot, it's still clay. When the pot is broken, it's uh, still clay. So pot, the clay is something uh, which uh, is greater than the pot because it, it is um, longer lasting than the pot. It, it, it is before, during and after the pot. So the, the cause is, is clay. In the second stage, we have this idea. So it's not just a pot. There is something which is the, the cause of this pot, and that is clay. Then the third stage, we investigate, where is this cause? What is this cause? Uh, this clay. And we are told, look there, in the pot itself. By the way, I, I am still talking about Brahman, universe, ultimate reality, not about clay and pot. Why is he suddenly into pottery? <laughs> Where do you find the clay? There itself, in the pot. I am reminded of this, one of the leading thinkers of the world. I am speaking about Professor Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak. Here in the faculty lounge of the Columbia University, I still remember distinctly saying, she's telling me in Bengali, but what she said was that Ma Sharada Devi, she says to some of her disciples, in Bengali she said, Ja kichu ache baba ache. 
whatever is there my child is here very simple simple statement but professor spivak said in to me in bengali ki kotha maharaj ha ja kichu ache ekhani ache what a tremendous what a profound statement this is where philosophy and science theology and religion mysticism and materialism they all come together whatever is here the clay you are looking for the cause of this pot the mysterious cause which is greater than the pot is right there where whatever you are touching is clay when you are holding the pot are you not touching clay it's clay on the outside it's clay on the inside the top is clay the bottom is clay it's clay through and through you look at it suddenly you see it's clay through and through whatever you are holding is clay whatever it weighs is the weight of the clay so no it's a little more than that it's the weight of the pot also no what is the pot if the, everything is clay then what is the pot the pot is a name pot or in sanskrit ghata and what is it it's a particular shape we have given to the clay and what else is it it's a particular use you can put water in it milk in it whatever it is you can put in it which you cannot put in say a mass of clay for example but you can put it in a pot so it is a name nama it's a form rupa it's a it's use vyavahara transaction name form and use nama rupa vyavahara so ah so you admit the pot is something over and above the clay no it isn't why not suppose you you abstract the clay away from it without the clay consider the pot does it have a form a little ghostly form if you take all the clay out of it sort of floating in the air like a shadow no take the clay away what will happen can you put water in it in the pot anymore no can you use it for anything no it is unusable avyavaharyam in sanskrit then the name pot the name what what does it refer to what does it refer to it refers to nothing you see when there is no form anymore and there's no new uh, use anymore the name pot what does it refer to nothing name and form and use are nothing apart from the um, uh, the uh, object uh, apart from the material the substance which is clay so we realize there is no pot other than the clay this is the third step if there is no pot other than the clay there is no effect called pot no effect by itself other than the cause clay there is no effect called pot in the fourth stage we realize if there is no effect called pot then let me ask you if there is no effect can we call the, the clay a cause i'll repeat that if nothing has been produced can you call something the producer what did it produce nothing if there is no effect what is is was the clear a cause of nothing so what we have in the fourth stage is since there is no substantial reality called an effect there is you cannot call the clay uh, cause the clay in itself is neither cause nor effect magic you still holding the same pot by the way <laughs> it continues to appear but now you realize it's an appearance appearance of what a substance called clay the pot is an appearance now if you go back to what we are talking about the universe and brahman here is this universe 
and when you investigate it, that reality which Vedanta is talking about, as Professor Spivak said, Ja Achei Khani, she's quoting the Holy Mother. Whatever is here, whatever there is reality is right here. Investigate the path, investigate this world. And you will discover pure being, existence itself. With a coating of names and forms and uses, Nama Rupa Vivahara, which appears as man and woman and uh, buildings and sky and earth and lake, particles and quasars and galaxies, space and time itself. One reality appearing in all of these forms. Now because other than that reality, other than existence, there's nothing else. If it's something other than existence becomes non-existent. So other than existence, there is nothing else. There is actually no universe which has been produced. I'm going into very rarefied uh, philosophy here, the philosophy of existence. But keep the clay and pot example in mind. So there is only one reality, which is existence itself, being itself, which is called Brahman in, in Vedanta, which appears as this universe and as all of us. It has not produced a universe. It does not produce a universe. It's not really a cause. In that same reality, which has not become a cause, which has not become an effect, which has not entered into causality, there appears from that infinite has appeared this infinite. It's still infinite. It has never really become limited. Beyond cause, beyond effect is Purnam. A lot hangs on this. I have mentioned earlier Alan Watts' story. Uh, when he says, suppose you go to the, from the first stage to the second stage. What was the first stage? Pot. Second stage, that the pot has a cause, clay. Material cause, clay. What is the first stage? Universe. Universe has a cause, God. And you stop in that second stage. What will happen? You will keep searching for a transcendent God who is other than the universe. You will keep searching for a clay which is other than the pot. If you keep the pot aside and search for the clay, will you find the clay? Never. Never. If you search for a God other than the universe, as Holy Mother said, whatever is here, whatever is real is here. If you take the here away and keep searching for uh, reality apart from this, a transcendent reality beyond the universe, other than the universe, divorced from the universe, a God who is entirely the other, you'll never find it. Keep searching. If you keep searching for clay other than the pot, you'll never find it. Alan Watts calls, calls it the crackpot theory. <laughs> he says, this is where religions get into trouble. This is the, the, complete, the, the source of the entire conflict between science and religion. Science insists I don't care about your supernatural realities. I'm investigating what is here. Idam. You, oh religious person, you're talking about something that is adaha, other. What this mantra tells us is purnamadah purnamidam. That other is this, this reality which you have right now. If you, if you were to investigate, and Vedanta tells us how to investigate, you would find that reality. You'd find God right here, um, right now and in none other than yourself. You, you are that reality. This is Purnam. A lot comes out of this. This one word, it encompasses the entire genius of 5,000 years of Hindu thinking. Um, not just Hindu thinking, the entirety of the ideas of the Indian civilization. How? Very quickly, a few points and I'll move ahead. Um, 
the whole question of is God with form or without form? If you read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, I mean Sri Ramakrishna in the late 19th century, India and Hinduism was in a ferment, especially in Calcutta, which was the capital of the British Empire. So there were reform movements. Uh, Brahmos, Vivekananda, Brahmananda, in the youth they were members of the Brahmo Samaj, which is a reform movement of Hinduism. And they said, one thing we will not do is worship God with form. God is without form. And all the young men who joined it, and the women, they had to give a, a pledge in writing. I will not go to temples and worship gods and goddesses with form. Immature. That debate has gone. Nobody really asks. But in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you find Sri Ramakrishna is asking people who visit him, do you believe in God with form or without form? Uh, nowadays, nobody asks us. People think you are crazy. I don't even believe in God. What God? I don't care. <laughs> with form, without form, I'm not interested. <laughs> that Sri Ramakrishna says, remember, that which is without form is also with form. It's a beautiful example of water and ice. Uh, it's the same reality. Uh, which is appearing uh, without form as the ocean and under the influence of tremendous cold. He gives the example bhaktir him, the, the intense cold of the intense devotion. Usually devotion would be warm and anyway. <laughs> what happens is the water freezes into various forms of icebergs. So the same formless reality appears as your divine mother, as Vishnu, with form, uh, as Shiva, with form as the various avatars, with form. I mean, just look at yourself. If I ask you, are you with form or without form? You say, with form, of course. But you're also a mind. Does the mind have a physical form? No. And if you have a, you have a soul according to any religion, does the soul have a particular form? No. Then are you with form or without form? You have to say, in a certain sense, without form, in a certain sense, with form. If you can be both, why can't God be both? Purnam. Purnam is that one reality which appears with form and without form. Okay, with form and without form, fine. But is the form male or female? Big debate. <laughs> it's not, not an issue at all in India, but it's an issue here. One uh, uh, rabbi whom I asked a few years ago, what is the resistance to, uh, to, hear, to thinking of God as, as a woman? Or as female, because God is, we know, everybody admits, yes, yes, we know that God is not male or female beyond gender, but still, you do conceive of God as a man, as in the male sense. So why not in the female sense? And only half-jokingly, he told me that, well, you know, Swami, it's a little difficult for us to think of, um, you know, God is on high, and uh, uh, with a booming voice, he gives these commandments, the voice of God. Now, with all apologies to all the ladies present here. It's very difficult for us to think of, conceive of God as uh, this lady sitting up there with a high-pitched, squeaky voice giving, giving <laughs> commandments. He's only half-joking. No, it's just a cultural thing. There's a resistance set up. So, is God a male according to the Hindu? Yes. And female? Yes. And neither. And both. In, at Harvard University, in the Harvard Business School, if you walk in there, in the lawn, the first big sculpture and artwork is placed there. It's the Ardhanarishwara. Uh -huh. Shiva and Parvati together. But it's also beautifully sculpted to show Radha and Krishna together. The male and female in one being. So this whole 
ಎಲ್ ಜಿ ಬಿ ಟಿ ಕ್ಯೂ ಪ್ಲಸ್ ರೆವಲ್ಯೂಷನ್ ಪೂರ್ಣವಾದ ವೇದಿಕ್ ಪೀಪಲ್ ವೇರ್ ಥೌಸಂಡ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಯರ್ಸ್ ಅಹೆಡ್ ಆಫ್ ದಿಸ್ ದ ಅಲ್ಟಿಮೇಟ್ ರಿಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಇಸ್ ಸರ್ಟನ್ಲಿ ಮೇಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸರ್ಟನ್ಲಿ ಫಿಮೇಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಮೋರ್ ದೆನ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಬಿಯಾಂಡ್ ಆಲ್ ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಜೆಂಡರ್ ಹೌ ಹೌ ಇಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಪಾಸಿಬಲ್ ಫಾರ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಬೌತ್ ಮೇಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಫಿಮೇಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ನೀದರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಪೂರ್ಣಂ ಇನ್ ವಿಚ್ ದಟ್ ಒನ್ ಪ್ಲಿನಂ ಇನ್ ವಿಚ್ ದೀಸ್ ಅಪಿಯರ್ ಅಲಾಂಗ್ ಕಮ್ಸ್ ದ ಬುದ್ಧಿಸ್ಟ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸೇಸ್ ಲುಕ್ ಯು ಆರ್ ಟ್ರೈಯಿಂಗ್ ಮೈ ಪೇಷನ್ಸ್ ಆಲ್ ದಿಸ್ ಇನ್ಫಿನಿಟ್ ಗಾಡ್ ಅಲ್ಟಿಮೇಟ್ ರಿಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಕ್ರಿಯೇಟರ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಯೂನಿವರ್ಸ್ ಕ್ಲೇ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಪಾರ್ಟ್ ಮೇಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಫಿಮೇಲ್ ಯು ನೋ ಅಟ್ ದ ಎಂಡ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಡೇಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಸೂಪರ್ಸ್ಟೇಷನ್ ಜಸ್ಟ್ ಮೇಕ್ ಬಿಲೀವ್ ಯು ಜಸ್ಟ್ ವೇರ್ ಇಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಗಾಡ್ ಆಫ್ ಯೋರ್ಸ್ ವೇರ್ ಇಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಅಲ್ಟಿಮೇಟ್ ರಿಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಯು ಆರ್ ಟಾಕಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಐ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ವಿ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ನೋ ಪ್ರೂಫ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಟ್ ದ ಬುದ್ಧಿಸ್ ಸೇಸ್ ಐ ವಿಲ್ ಇನ್ವೆಸ್ಟಿಗೇಟ್ ಮೈ ರಿಯಾಲಿಟಿ my lived reality here i am this being i shall concentrate turn my attention within um, and meditate within and discover whatever there is to be discovered he will not even use the term atma he, he says no self but there is a truth to be discovered he talks about an ultimate reality to be discovered within and um, the hindu says perfectly all right that which is the reality of the universe the reality of god is also the reality of the self tatvamasi that thou art that reality which is appearing as this universe is also appearing as the microverse the microcosm you if you investigate inwards what you will find we say o buddhist what you will find and what the theists have found are one and the same reality that thou art the ground of my soul and the ground of god is one and the same ground meister eckart the german theologian purnam it appears as individual it appears as cosmos because it's neither individual nor cosmic consciousness and matter mind and um, mind and matter subject and object both are appearances of one reality so i'm vivekananda says one only exists it appears as nature and soul how is that possible how are both the same reality because both are that same one reality purnam the god of religion saguna brahman which is worshiped by all theistic religions and the absolute reality which vedanta speaks about satchidananda they are both the same thing there is a story i love about a non-dualist monk in the himalayas and there was a scholar who is to visit him um it's actually true there's a story this scholar was uh, dualistic by the way dualistic and non dualistic here means dualistic in the sense there is an ultimate reality god and the universe and us we are all separate from god there are multiple realities two and more and non dual means ultimately there is one reality which appears as many that many are experienced nobody can deny look around you so many are experienced but upon investigation does it reveal one underlying reality so the non dualist says yes there is one underlying reality brahman which appears as the universe so this scholar pandit would go to the swami dualistic non dualistic and they would argue the swami would say no non dualism is correct advaita and the scholar would argue no dualism is correct dvaita um the formless reality uh, nirgun nirakar the swami would say that is real after a long um, back and forth the scholar finally admitted the the rightness of the swami's position one day he went and said स्वामी जी आप ठीक कहते हैं निराकार ही सच है यू आर राइट ओ स्वामी द फॉर्मलेस अल्टीमेट रियालिटी नॉन डुअल रियालिटी अलोन इज द ट्रूथ दैट इज द ट्रूथ 
इमीडिएटली द स्वामी केम बैक विथ और साकार तेरा चाचा है इज इज द रियलिटी विथ फॉर्म गॉड विथ फॉर्म द गॉड विथ क्वालिटी थीस्टिक गॉड इज दैट योर अंकल दैट डजन क्वाइट वर्क इन इंग्लिश इन हिंदी इट्स इट्स सरकेस्टिक वॉट द स्वामी वॉज सेंग इज दैट यू इंसिस्टेड दैट ओनली गॉड इज रियल I mean, God is the reality. Personal God is the reality. That's what it should be worshipped. And I was insisting that beyond the personal God, there is this um, uh, uh, absolute, beyond attributes, beyond qualities, beyond form. Now that you accept that uh, absolute, you are now saying that the God with form and attributes—that's false. That's not really the, the, the real. Real thing is that attributeless, ultimate reality of Advaita Vedanta. I accept that. But what you worship as the God of religion? that is also this very thing it's that's a sarcastic way of saying is that your uncle no it is the same reality which you have accepted as the non dual that which you accept as the non dual is also appearing as the dualistic universe of god um, individual and uh, the universe beautiful thing you know hanuman's saying that what is the reality the lord o lord rama when i think of myself as a body i am your servant you are my master when i think of myself as a sentient being you are the whole and i am your part i am an infinitesimally small part of you but i am part of you not different from you not servant master part of you and when i think of myself as consciousness as being you and i are one reality okay so which is the truth three he says this is the truth <laughs> all of it how can all of it be the true truth purnam it is the same thing which you can conceive of as servant master part and whole one undivided reality dvaita vishishta dvaita and advaita sri so ramakrishna says very simply um that the snake which is coiled up and the snake which is moving in you know that uh, uh, snake like way it's it's crawling along is the same snake the water calm and the ocean in waves is the same water literally same there's nothing new there it's the same thing that which is the attributeless absolute reality existence consciousness bliss is also literally this so that has changed into this not at all it is still that absolute perfect brahman right now this is purnam and that thou art this is what you get all of this is the answer to the second question what what is it that we get in spiritual life the highest answer i can give you is this one this is what you get in spiritual life the purnam look at its applications i'll just give you one example the so called much reviled much criticized much abused image worship of the hindus so one thing people have for more than 1000 to 1500 years Uh, have been criticizing the hindus for his worship of uh, images what does it mean look at the the development of thought here so imagine um, a very primitive society maybe pre farming a kind of so they they think that particular stone or block of wood or the tree that is somehow the divinity they are worshiping then along comes a more enlightened person and says no god is not that thing not that block of stone or metal or uh, whatever you are worshiping god is formless it's not it cannot be expressed in an image so the great insight of the monotheistic religions you cannot have god in a uh, in an idol be against idolatry then you go higher 
the whole technology of uh, image worship in Hinduism. So we know that. I think even in primitive societies, I, I doubt anybody ever thought that that block of stone is God. I'm not sure, but um, I doubt it. What we do in image worship is, uh, in all kinds of Hindu image worship, is that we use it as what is called an avalambana, support. That's why in Durga Puja, for example, the puja starts with, not with the magnificent image of Durga, but with a, uh, with a pot again, a pot of water. <laughs> Uh, there is a ghatta in which you invoke the presence of the divine. It's pretty shapeless, just a round pot. And from that you invoke the presence of the divine in that magnificent image. And then you worship. And then you ask the divine to go back uh, into the pot in the water which symbolizes the body and the heart, your, your, um, the sentience within. Same consciousness had been invoked outside in that pot and from there into the form, that magnificent form of Durga. And once you invoke it back and you say, now the worship is over, forgive me, O Mother, you are uh, formless, I have worshipped you in a form. You are limitless, I have worshipped you in a particular place. Uh, you are beyond all speech, I worshipped you with uh, uh, words, and so on. You see the philosophy behind it. And then, all of this we are going to um, discard right now. But I'm just telling you what is the thinking behind it. And that's what enables the Hindu to casually, happily toss aside the much-worshipped, revered image of the Durga into the river the next day and sing and dance at the same time. Be happy about it. How is this possible? Are you, are you throwing God into the river? Not at all. So is this the deeper understanding which uh, those who criticize Hindus for idol worship, they don't understand this. This is also um, sort of in between, halfway house. The real understanding comes now. The real understanding of image worship is not that, that image is not Brahman, not God, but we use it as a support because God is inconceivable and therefore we need a support, an object into which we can impose the idea of God there and temporarily worship it there and then dismos, dismiss the imposition. We know that God is, as we say, you are formless, we worship you in a form. You are um, limitless, we worship you in a limited place and so on. You are beyond language, we worship you through mantras and language and so on. So is that it? No. Yeah. Image worship actually is done. You worship God in that image to correct the notion that it is not God. The wrong notion that there is something like an image or an object outside. It is not. What is that object outside? Just take an object here, an object here which is outside. Is it really outside? Isn't it an object in your experience? You say, I'm looking at that or I'm looking at this. Am I not seeing it? What is a more accurate description? Clock, description one. Description two, I am seeing a clock. Which is more accurate? I am seeing a clock. I am seeing a clock means what? That in my awareness, through the mind, through the eyes, I have an awareness of a clock. But the idea that there is a clock outside, there is an outside and an inside, all of this is in awareness. Imagine a similar situation in a dream. I am standing and looking at a clock. Yes, the clock is outside me. This is here. This is inside me. This is outside me. And I am looking at a clock. The next moment I wake up from the dream, I would realize 
inside, outside, clock, body, person, all they are imagined in the mind. So-called inside and outside. They were in the mind of the dreamer. Push it a little further, right now in the waking state. From a perspective of the body, all this is outside your body, no doubt. But from the perspective of awareness, what do I mean by perspective of awareness? When you are seeing something, you are aware, is it not? When you are hearing something, you are aware. Right now you are aware. Not only listening to my words, but also aware. Yeah. Obviously, without that, no listening possible. When you are smelling, tasting, touching, you are aware. When you are thinking, understanding, remembering, um, desiring, hating, aware. Now, in this awareness, does all of this not appear in awareness? Take it in, in uh, three stages. All, everything in your life appears to awareness. Appearing to awareness. One step forward, second step. It appears in awareness. What do I mean by in awareness? This entire world that you are seeing right now, take this hall right now. I am claiming it's not only appearing to you, it's appearing in you the awareness. Why? If it was, what does it mean something appears to me? It means, the language means that I am something separate, that is something separate and it is appearing to me. Here. It is something separate from me and it's appearing to me. But this is true only when you think of this as a physical object and this as a body. But awareness, I'm aware of the body, I'm aware of this. Isn't it that this clock and this body are both in awareness? Try to grasp this. If I stand as a body, clock is outside me. If I stand as awareness, but the clock is in my awareness, in me the awareness. The body is in me the awareness. Sensations are in me the awareness. Thoughts are in me the awareness. Memories are in me the awareness. Knowing and not knowing are in me the awareness. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep are in me the awareness. This is only the second step. Third step. All this, what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, that which sees, hears, smells, and tastes and touches, that which thinks and uh, remembers and desires and hates, all of this are not only in awareness, are they anything other than awareness? Are they not like the clay pot? It is the clay only with a name and a form and a function. The gold ornament, it is the gold only with a name and a form and a function of a necklace or a bracelet or a ring. Similarly, whatever is in awareness, is it not just awareness itself, appearing to itself with a name and a form and a function? Is it not the ocean itself, the water itself, appearing to itself in the form of waves and foam, waves and foam and surf are nothing other than the water? Name, form and activity are imposed on awareness. That is what we call universe. That is what we call objects appearing to awareness. Take it in three stages. The object appears to you the awareness. The object appears in you the awareness. The object is nothing but you the awareness. The experience continues to be the same. How is this possible? Purnam. Then you establish Purnam. So this is um, the experience of, see, when you are worshipping an image, 
it's correcting the idea of a thing out there which i'm using to worship an inexpressible god no it is none other than an inexpressible god now look at the entire history of image worship iconoclasm and uh, the, uh, idolatry anti idolatry starts off with a thing and I'm, i may think that that is god then it's corrected no that object cannot be god god is beyond form break the idol then it advances further oh we understand perfectly that object is not god and we are imposing our conception of god on it and using it as a technology as a support for worshiping god and then it goes to the final idea which comes from purnam there is no object it is god alone which appears as its own object you are that purnam tatvamasi wonderful how do we realize this all this practical how do i experience it uh, how does it become a fact of my life and krishna says yam labdhwa labdhwa he uses a word attaining which gaining which it comes from the word labha which is common in all indian languages it means a gain you have a profit that's a labha a gain gaining which one does not think there is anything higher to be gained but that labdhva is a very interesting word anything other than you can be gained or lost something which you do not have can be gained i don't have money i can gain money but whatever can be gained also can be lost but how do you gain your own self it's rather paradoxical all along we have been saying that purnam the ultimate reality which is so magnificent which is nothing there's nothing other than that then how do i how do i gain that it's you if it's me then how do i gain myself what do i do to gain myself there's an ancient saying in india atma labhat na paro labha there is no higher gain than the gain of the self but so self contradictory how can you gain the self so it's like saying If I ask you to go to say Central Park, you know what to do. You have to get up and go out of the door and walk down and fine. But if I ask you to go wherever you are sitting right now, where will you go? What will you do? Which way will you move? Whatever you do, you'll go away from where <laughs> where you are supposed to be. Similarly, how do us? How does one gain the self? There is only one way. If I am that already, and it's not at all obvious to me, then there is ignorance. i do not know what i truly am i do not know what is uh, all the time available to me and also obviously available to me it is the old story of the washerman's uh, stone which sri ramakrishna referred to simple sto- uh, story of the washerman who found a diamond didn't know it was a diamond thought it was a rather strange stone and he used it to scrub clothes dirty laundry he would scrub clothes with it but he thought it's a bit weird this rock is not like other rocks so let me ask my friend who was a vegetable seller the vegetable seller said it looks like a valuable it looks pretty shiny and nice i'll give you 10 rupees for it luckily the, the washerman did not sell it he went and, and you know further and further finally comes to the diamond merchant who says this is the biggest diamond i've ever seen i'll give you 10 million rupees for for it and the washerman's all of his needs were met he was he became wealthy all, all his poverty was removed he always had that diamond but what was he using it for he was using it to scrub clothes we have that purnam that unlimited existence consciousness place we are it and we are using it also what are we using it for seeing hearing smelling tasting talking 
thinking, loving, hating, desiring, being miserable, fighting. Yeah. All of that is possible because of that one reality, that Purnam, which we are. It is existence, it is awareness itself. It is fulfillment itself, Satchidananda. We have to recognize it. And the recognition, how you do, is moving from ignorance to enlightenment, and the movement is jnana, is knowledge. As distinguished from bhakti, as distinguished from karma, as distinguished from yoga. Karma by doing something. There is nothing that you can do to become Brahman because you are Brahman, you are Purna. Devotion, faith, it's not a question of faith. By believing in it, you will not get it. You have to know, you have to understand what it is. Meditation, yoga. By concentrating on it, you are not, you're not going to get it because by concentrating, see, the movie screen is there on which movies are playing. Now, yoga says if you switch off the movies, then you will see the screen, which is true in a certain way, but uh, Vedanta says you are seeing the screen anyway. Yoga says you smash the pot into a lump of clay, then you got clay. If you quieten all the waves in the lake and make it a calm lake, then you have got water. Vedanta says, my dear yogi, when it is a pot, it's still clay. You don't have to smash the beautiful pot. When it is a wavy lake, it's still the same water. When it is samsara, it's still purnam. It's not done through meditation. It's done through uh, knowledge, jnana. Again, be careful. Bhakti, dhyana and karma are absolutely necessary. If you try to think that, oh, so I don't need to meditate and I can stop doing my uh, karma yoga and uh, I can give up my uh, prayers and rituals, you're asking for trouble. And then that realization is never going to happen. That jnana also is not going to come. They are, even from classical Advaitic perspective, bhakti, jnana and dhyana are uh, necessary supports. But what we are claiming, what we are trying to do here is recognize an already existing Purnam. Once you recognize it, it's available to you. Once we make the breakthrough, it's available to us. It is already available. We only recognize the availability. We are already beyond sorrow. We recognize that we always were fine. So, um, one little caution here. We use the language of enlightenment, breakthrough, uh, intuitive realization, uh, then another new target is set up. I must, I understand, everything is Purnam. I am that Purnam. But, there's always a but lurking there. But, I need that breakthrough. Swami is talking about it, so I need that breakthrough. <laughs> uh, so, I need that enlightenment. It is the same clay and pot problem all over again. There is this part and there is something called clay which I need to realize. You have, you have landed in Alan Watts crackpot situation again. <laughs> so relax. Because when, you, when that enlightenment breakthrough, it will come. When it does come, you will realize it was fine. I didn't have been so tense earlier about it. Yeah. What is more imp important? Uh, enlightenment or the fact that you are Brahman, you are Purnam. That you are Purnam is the more important thing. And the enlightenment will come of itself by the grace of God, by, the, by our own uh, intent and effort, it will arise in our lives. What will happen then? Krishna says, Yasmin stita dukkhena guruna pinavichalyate. What will happen? What will change? Nothing will change. <laughs> oh no, 
Nothing will change. I thought everything would change. Everything would be perfect. People would be nice to me. I would be a millionaire and I would be all young all over again. Nope. <laughs> Nothing will change. Uh, in Uttarakhand, Himalayas, the Swamis put it nicely. Gyan koi tod nahi karta hai. Realization, knowledge never changes, never destroys, never rearranges things in the world. Knowledge just reveals what it is. Just in the, it's our day-to-day -day experience. When you know something, it doesn't change it. You just know what is already there. So even enlightenment, the realization of Brahman, just shows you the ultimate reality, the Purnam, which is already there. But that is perfect. From that perspective, it's alright. But this world of appearance will continue. When you know that it is just clay, and there's no part at all. What do you see when you are, uh, look at it? You see a part. When you realize Purnam, existence, consciousness, bliss, I am that Aham Brahmasmi, it becomes perfectly clear to you. Indubitably so. Okay, little word play here. Um, the original Sanskrit is, Na dukhe na guruna api vichalyate. Even the heaviest of sorrows cannot shake you. Cannot unsettle you. The word used is guruna by the heaviest. Guru means heavy. But Guru also means Guru, spiritual teacher. Now Guru na api vichalyati. If you play it, it's, a, it's not the actual meaning, it's a word play. Uh, it means even the Guru cannot unsettle you. Uh, till now Swami has been saying that I am Brahman. Now suddenly he goes off his rocker and he says, No, actually I take it all back. You are not Brahman. You are just this miserable creature. Uh, you can laugh at Swami's face. When I have this clarity, nothing can shake me anymore. It is in that same unlimited awareness, that Purnam, that Swami who said, I am Purnam, now is coming and saying, I am not Purnam. That also is revealed by the same Purnam. God cannot unsettle you. If the Lord God himself appears before you and says, I revise, a new revised edition says that you are not Brahman. You will laugh like, exactly like this, you'll smile at God. <laughs> you'll chuckle. And you, say, you can say to God, you are cute. Na guruna api vichalyate. Even the spiritual master cannot unsettle you once you get this clarity. It's choiceless then. Again, the clay pot example, Shankaracharya says, when you understand what clay is, even when holding a pot, any kind of pot also, the clay, he says, the clay blazes forth, bhasuram. Like the sun shining out there, unmistakably. There's no choice anymore. God blazes forth for you in every experience. Ken Upanishad says, Prati bodha viditam matam amritatvam hivindate. In every experience, in every thought, every um, word you speak, everything you see, every uh, taste, touch, smell, divinity shines forth. That is Purnam. So now guruna vichalyate. Nothing can shake you then. That does not depend anymore upon knowledge also. It does not depend. See, I am meditating on Shiva. It depends on meditation. Shankaracharya says this. Kattum akattum anyathava kattum shakyate. In meditation you may do it, you may not do it, you may do it in this way or that way. You can, you can uh, attend to your breath, in breath and out breath. You can repeat a mantra and think of Krishna or Shiva or the Divine Mother. You can visualize Tara or you may not do anything at all. It depends on your meditation. Here it does not depend on meditation. Every attempt at meditation is also revealed by the same Purnam. It does not depend on karma, action. It does not at all depend on your faith. Believe it, not believe it. You are that reality. And it's clear to you. 
You say, now I'll sit down and doubt it. <laughs> yes. I know this monk who had that breakthrough. And on purpose, very contrary, he decided not to do anything about it. Uh, he, he said that, I've had other experiences. They've all come and gone. If we try to maintain it, then we might have it again. Don't maintain it, it'll go away. So this one also, let me see, this breakthrough, whether it goes or not. And years later, he, he would say that, exactly the same, effortlessly maintained. It does not depend on, um, it does not depend on faith. It's not a question of belief. It's not a question of meditation. It's not a question of action, doing some ritual or something or the other. It's not even a question of knowledge. After that enlightenment, that flash of enlightenment which is in technically in Vedanta called Brahmakara Vritti, that is also supposed to be, it's supposed to be falsified because it's part of the mind. It's also an appearance. But it has revealed to you what you are. The ignorance in the mind has been removed by knowledge in the mind. People ask, all this is, is still you're doing it in the mind, right? Of course you're doing it in the mind. The ignorance is in the mind. Knowledge must arise in the mind. But both knowledge and ignorance are set aside once knowledge has arisen. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of the thorn. The thorn in my flesh. I take another thorn and pick out the first thorn. Do I leave the second thorn in my flesh now? No. Ignorance is the thorn. It's removed by the thorn of knowledge. It toss both aside. So normally this doesn't happen in our studies. I'm ignorant about something. I work hard at it and acquire knowledge. I don't want to get rid of that knowledge. This is not like that. It shows you something that is choicelessly there. After that, nothing can affect it. It does not even depend on the knowledge after that. Not before, but after that it does not even depend on knowledge. It does not depend on waking, dreaming, deep sleep. When they say, people will say, then when deep sleep you forget, you're still trapped in the mind. Yeah. Once you intuitively realize what it is that you're talking about, you realize waking, dreaming and deep sleep depend on that Purnam. The Purnam does not depend on waking, dreaming or deep sleep. So this is what you uh, attain and therefore you are not shaken by the heaviest of sorrows. The sorrows will continue. Remember, Gyan Tod Pod Nahi Karta Hai. Knowledge does not destroy anything in the universe. Realizing that it's a movie screen will not change the plot of the movie. The tragedy will remain a tragedy, a comedy will remain a comedy. And the comedy will be succeeded by a tragedy and the tragedy will be succeeded by a comedy and then both will stop for the night. The universe will rotate. Yeah. Existence creation, existence and destruction srishti, sthiti, pralaya appearance every bit of it is purnam when it is there it's fine when it's not there it's fine Ashtavakra sings let this body stay for a hundred years let it go tomorrow it's all the same to me what strength grounded in what enables him to say this we can all say it we can say it right now Complete freedom from suffering, complete freedom from suffering means it will not stop, but you are free of it. The movie will continue. Complete freedom from fear. Even the heaviest of things, like the Im imminent death, you can look at it with smile, with a smile. I'll end with this. Krishna, in the next verse, 23rd verse, he gives, so therefore he says, the highest yoga, the yoga... Uh, the Tibetans call it the yoga beyond all uh, yoga, anuttara, something that cannot be surpassed. This highest yoga, he defines it as tam vidyat 
Dukkha Sanyoga Vyogam Yoga Sangitam. Yoga is, look at the play of words. If you think of yoga as union, which unites me with God or whatever higher reality, so that is yoga. Then what is yoga? Yoga is the um, is that union which is defined as the disunion of the union with pain. <laughs> Dukkha sanyoga, yoga, union with pain. Vyogam, disunion. Yoga sangitam is called union. Why do you define it in this uh, roundabout way? Because the what causes pain and what causes samsara is an appearance. Only that has to be dissolved. Ignorance has to be dissolved. Samsara bo born of ignorance has to be dissolved. Purnam exists, not to be attained anew. It is revealing itself all the time. I pray to the Divine Mother to bless us that we may realize this Purnam always ever blazing forth everywhere, all the time. Let it become a reality in our lives. Let our lives be blessed and let all those around us also be blessed by that. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu